Uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Appreciate your pastor trusting me. That's a little scary, you know. Pastor leaves and decides to have someone come in. I was going to text him and say, well, we split the church. Congratulations. But I try not to be that hard on him. But I know he's looking forward to getting back here. And I know you're looking forward to seeing them, especially those who have family members that are on the trip. Anyway, of course, if you know the Schwankies, you know with the prophet's chamber at their home, they've always got you to sign that little guest book. So I did that this afternoon, as they always encourage me to do, especially Glenda. She'll hand me the pen. Here, write something nice. And uh, so I did. I said, some folks will do anything to try to get out of hearing me preach. And uh, then went on and thanked for all their hospitality, even from a great distance. Well, it has been a blessing to be here today. This morning we talked about some of the early uh, writings of the New Testament, and tonight we're going to go to the other extreme and look at one of the last things that we were given by inspiration, and that is the little book of 1 John. The Apostle John, the last of the apostles, uh, his life was threatened on several occasions. He was burned in a cauldron of boiling oil. He somehow survived was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and then eventually was released, but then was one of those very few apostles that lived to a good old age. If you remember John chapter 21, for example, we hear when Simon Peter is comparing his picture, someone's going to carry you where you don't want to go, and, and a picture of the cross, and Simon Peter, according to tradition, was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. But John did die a natural death, I suppose you could say, although with all the persecution that went on earlier, I'm sure he had a lot of scars in his physical body that probably uh, hastened his death as we come to the end of the first century A.D. I had the privilege, after graduating from college, of seeing the Isle of Patmos. My uh, first cruise ever was for, started out in Athens, uh, and that's not Georgia, uh, <laughs> Athens, Greece, and we went on a tour of the different islands that Paul visited on his journeys, and then we got to the Isle of Patmos. We had to take a donkey on a switchback back and forth to get up to this beautiful whitewashed monastery in the top of the island. Um, one of those beautiful sights in the world, so I don't know if I really feel sorry for John being exiled there. The water down below you is just absolutely the bluish, green, clear water you could ever imagine. But as we look at 1 John, and we think about, okay, what are some of the last things that the Lord wanted us to know by inspiration before he closed up the New Testament? Of course, we've got the book of Revelation, and we're not going to look at that tonight, but he wanted us again have an idea what the future looks like and how God will judge sin. And by the time you get to Revelation 19 and God's judgment upon this earth and the vindication of God's people and the judgment of sin, the entire heavenly host breaks out into the hallelujah chorus. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know, Christmas time, we enjoy, as I do, hearing Handel's Messiah. And of course, the real capstone of Handel's Messiah, if you've ever heard it, is the Hallelujah Chorus. And of course the tradition was started years ago by one of the royalty, and I can't remember which one, you probably remember better than I, who actually stood to his feet when he heard the Hallelujah Chorus. Even Handel said when he was composing, and I see heaven opening. And whatever that meant, it was a glorious song, and yet sometimes we forget that's not Hallelujah the Lord God omnipotent reigneth because he's been born as a babe in a manger. It's hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth because God is finally judging sin. And as we see things through the eyes of a holy God, we too will rejoice in heaven with the judgment upon sin. So that's a fascinating study, but we'll leave that for another occasion. Because I see tonight in 1 John, that just as the Lord 
by inspiration, gave us those books we talked about this morning, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and the book of James, those first five books chronologically that we were given with the theme of hope and peace and waiting for the Lord to come back. The Lord also wanted to give us a book of assurance and encouragement at the very end. One little book, the Epistle of 1 John, written by the Apostle John, given to give us assurance of salvation. Well, that must be a pretty big deal with God, I would think. I mean, if he is going to take five chapters of a little book, 1 John, and in that book he is going to give us assurance of our salvation, then I think it's something we need to pay attention to. I will have to admit to you that it was years before I ever preached this message to adults. It was usually something that I saved for a Christian school chapel, whether it be elementary or high school students. Occasionally, I'd give this message in college. But I've discovered something. All of us need a message on assurance of salvation. Because there are times in our lives, each and every one of us, where we really doubt whether or not we're saved. And that's critical. And the Lord wants us to rest in that assurance, rest in that confidence, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are on our way to heaven. So I wanted to share with you tonight, again, a message that I hope would be encouragement to you. For a long time, I can't recall ever hearing a message myself on assurance. In fact, many preachers kind of just would dismiss that subject or downplay it, especially they came into a church for a week of meetings. I remember years ago when the Sword of the Lord was being published, there was very common for different evangelists to write into the sword and give the results of their meetings how many salvation decisions they had, how many dedication decisions, how many surrenders of lives, and so on. Well, as a result of that, I mean, I, I guess that was a good idea, nothing wrong with it, but what happened is there were preachers that decided, you know, let's not worry about this assurance of salvation thing, let's just really promote these people getting saved for the first time. So I want to share with you, first of all tonight, some of the causes of doubt but before we look into the outline, let's read three verses, follow along, in 1 John chapter 5, and I'll read verses 11, 12, and 13. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we've had a busy day, and I'm so thankful for those that have been faithful to you throughout the day, and especially as they've come tonight. May we be a blessing to each and every one through the preaching of your word. God, and direct our time together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the problems we face is, is simply some of the causes that come into our lives, the things that cause us to have doubts. It can start as early as our view of the day we got saved. We are made differently. We respond differently. And yet there are those that will accuse you of probably not being saved, if your experience is not exactly like theirs. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been to a lot of ball games over the years, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, and so on, and I've discovered something. Different personalities of different people respond differently to different events. I've seen someone whose team just won a major championship jumping up and down, while the person next to them is laughing and the person two seats over is crying. We all respond differently. You say, well, well, preacher, 
Now, when I got saved, I did it right. I cried buckets full of tears. Well, that's great. I did not. I was five years of age. It just seemed the normal thing to do when mom and dad had been talking to me for months about salvation. And finally, on a June 1st, I knelt beside my parents' bed with dad on one side and mom on the other. And I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I have to admit to you that I don't remember that day. I remember it because my mom put the date on a calendar that was hanging on her refrigerator. June 1st. Now that was an important date to me, so when my wife and I got married, 20 years after that, it worked out perfectly. We were married on June 1st. I figured one date is enough for me to try to remember so I've gone with June 1st, and of course, you know, it's coming up here in another four weeks, so I'm already preparing for our anniversary. The day of my salvation and the day of my marriage, all on June 1st, 20 years apart. But we respond differently, and yet there are those that doubt their salvation because it wasn't exactly the same way as someone else. There's another reason we sometimes doubt. We doubt because we really wonder at that moment that when I accepted Christ as Savior and that in my heart I accepted the fact that He died, buried, was risen again, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And yet there still comes that time where we wonder, did I have enough faith? How much faith do you need? Well, the wonderful thing is the fact that faith is determined by its object, not by how much you can work out or work up or get in your heart of hearts. It's not what you do, it's what your faith is in. My faith as a child of age five in a living Savior is greater faith than a 45-year-old adult who has faith in a dead religious leader of some other religion. A child, age five, six, seven, it's not how much faith they work up, it is simply that that faith that they have is in the object of Jesus Christ. Sometimes as believers we are mocked, ridiculed, because we are trusting and our faith is in someone we've never seen. Now, I thought about that. In fact, I'm coming up in about a few more years of preaching now for 45 years of my life. That's a long time, especially when you're only 35. But 45 years of my life spent preaching, and I realize I have been preaching about someone I've never seen. I've been preaching about a Savior that I've yet to actually come face to face with. Oh, I pray to him, I read his word, but to actually, physically, literally see him face to face, I'm preaching about someone I've never seen. And I have to admit that kind of bothered me until several years ago. I was supposed to be in a Christian school speaking in the afternoon, and I was about 100 miles away. I was traveling along the Mississippi River there in Illinois, going from south to north, and if you know what the winding roads are around the Mississippi, you know that you got some hills on one side and the great Mississippi on the other, and the road just follows the hills and the river, of course. Well, I could tell after getting behind some big old slow-moving semi that I probably was not going to make my appointment. Now, this was long enough ago that cell phones were not a thing that everybody had, so I figured I'm going to have to stop, find a phone somewhere, and call this school and tell them I'm going to be late. But then something happened. All of a sudden, as I'm counting, I'm about the eighth car behind this semi, and there's no way we can see around the road clear enough to be able to pass. But then out of the blue, this guy in the truck comes to the brow of a hill and he sticks his arm out the window and starts doing this. You ever seen that? One by one, those cars go around without giving it a second thought. 
All of a sudden, it's number eight, it's my turn, and all of a sudden, that dawns on me, I'm about to trust my life to two-thirds of a hairy arm. I've never seen this guy. I don't know what he looks like. He could be some serial killer, some maniac. <laughs> Come on around, right into the path of this oncoming semi. I didn't know that. But just like everyone that had gone before me, I went around that truck. Amazing to me that we are almost intimidated by someone who accuses us of trusting in someone we've never seen when we do it all the time. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. A child, a teenager, an adult has enough faith, not because it's within them, but because that faith is in the object of their faith. So we sometimes have doubts about our salvation because we did not respond the way someone else responded. We sometimes doubt our salvation because we're afraid we did not have faith. Other times we're afraid, well, we didn't say the right words. You know, maybe I should have rephrased my prayer. Or maybe I should have followed the lead of the one that was giving me the gospel. I remember going through that. Well, how do I know I was five? I mean, what, what did I say? Did I say the right thing? Did I use the right words? And the more I search the scripture, I realize there's a lot of different ways to pray. And it's not so much the words, it's the attitude of the heart. For one, Luke 18, 13, it was God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a good prayer. But that's not what I prayed. For someone else, it might be Luke 18, 17. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God is a little child. He shall in no wise enter therein. Maybe you said, well, I wasn't acting like a little child when I prayed. I didn't say those kind of words. They were not juvenile. They were not childish. Someone else might pray, yet thou lackest one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. That's a strange plan of salvation. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ knew what that rich young ruler needed. He knew the thing that would make all the difference in his life. We may simply pray differently than anybody else, but in our heart of hearts, if we simply put that faith in Christ, then we have done what is necessary to be a believer. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For others, they have questions about their salvation, and they doubt it, because they don't know if they have the right motive. I thought about that. Well, preacher, I guess I got saved because I wanted to go to heaven. What's wrong with that? I want to go to heaven. Someone else says, well, preacher... I got saved because I did not want to go to hell. What's wrong with that? Somebody else says, well, I got saved because I love the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. We love Him because He first loved us. Nothing wrong with that. There can be a variety of motives as to what brings us to Christ. Why should we spend our time worrying about whether or not I said the right words or had the right motive or had enough faith or responded the way my neighbor did? All of these things tend to bring us doubts about our salvation. Another thing that often comes up is, did I repent enough? Well, that's a tough one, and I'm not going to get into all that, but I will say this, as a child at the age of five, to be honest with you, I did not have a lot to repent of. I mean, it wasn't that I was a serial killer, mass murderer, I was five. I'd occasionally hit my sister, but I knew that wasn't a sin. That's simply what brothers are supposed to do. And I know I've given you my little made-up testimony before, but every time I give it, people seem to enjoy it. But when I was growing up, it seemed like you'd bring in these individuals who had this wicked, vile background, and you know, you'd get them behind the pulpit, let them give their testimony. Now, I praise the Lord. Don't get me wrong here. For anyone that comes to Christ... And like we talked about this morning, some of the most wicked, vile people who ever walked this planet were the start of the churches that we find at the beginning of the New Testament. But I remember thinking, 
when I heard these testimonies of those that had been in and out of prison, and those that had been, you know, on drugs and alcoholics, drunks, I thought, man, I, I don't even have much of a testimony. So one day I made up one. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I was on the bottle for the first year of my life. Many a night I was found in the arms of a woman to whom I was not married. I was so out of control, I was sentenced to the chair. My own mother strapped me in and walked away. But I somehow later escaped and joined a wicked tricycle gang in my neighborhood. I became a pusher in the church nursery. Eventually, I developed a wicked, vile addiction. I was hooked on phonics. So I went on with this testimony to kind of make a point that at the age of five, I didn't repent of a lot. I hadn't lived that long enough to have committed some of the wicked, vile sins that we hear from so many folks when they come to know Christ as Savior. So a lot of things caused doubts. Did I respond the way somebody else? Did I have enough faith? Did I use the right words? Did I have the right motive? Did I repent enough? And all of these things are really addressed in 1 John as we see some of these causes. Another thing that's very common, especially with those who've grown up in a Christian home, and while we were enjoying lunch today, and I appreciate all of those who've made my stay here very special, but as we were talking lunch today, I was asked about my salvation and how old I was. Well, I was five years of age, and I don't remember it. I don't remember the day when I tell you that I knelt beside my parents' bed with mom on one side and dad on the other, I tell you that's because that's what my parents told me. I cannot remember. I cannot remember the day or the time. And yet, I realize that really should not bother me. I remember hearing a statistic given several years ago about a study that was done by some scientific organization, some medical organization, in which they took a survey of children that were blinded before they reached the age of six. Evidently, they limited the study to those who were born seeing. And perhaps a year, a two, three, four, perhaps even as much as five years later, because of some accident, perhaps because of some disease, something like perhaps what happened to Fanny Crosby, she was blinded because of the wrong medicine being placed in her eyes. These individuals were blinded before they reached the age of six. And the study concluded that a child blinded before the age of six will have no visual memory. They will never remember a time that they could see. Even though when they were two or three or four, they could but they simply has been blotted out of their memory if it happens before they reach the age of six. And I remember when I read that, I thought, well, that's me. I mean, I wasn't physically blinded. But when you're saved at an age like five, you're probably not going to remember very much. You and I tend to remember things from our childhood that are traumatic. Forget For me, getting saved was not traumatic. It was very natural. It was very normal. I mean, after all, why wouldn't anybody want to be saved? Why, why wouldn't anybody want to go to heaven? Why wouldn't anybody want to spend all eternity with the one who died on the cross for our sins? To me, that just made sense. It was just perfectly logical. But I do remember one event when I was five. It was the day we moved. But I remember it by contrast with my salvation because our move was so traumatic. We were moving from inside Sterling, Illinois to a farmhouse about 20 miles out of town. No, we weren't going to work the farm. My dad was an accountant, not a farmer. But he thought it would be kind of interesting to at least live in the farmhouse and let other people work the farm and we'd have the joy of kind of being out 
in nature and having a little garden and letting chickens chase my sister all over the yard. And I remember that day we got the two big old movers came, brought their big old truck, loaded up all the furniture. Now this will tell you how long ago you do something like this. You'd never do what my parents did then. They thought it would be a great idea for their five-year-old son, that's me, to ride in the truck with the movers as they came from our house inside town 20 miles out into the country. I thought it was great. I mean, I don't, I don't ever recall ever being in a big old truck like that before. So they sat me down right between two of the ugliest guys you could ever imagine. Tattoos everywhere. It's the gruffest, toughest looking guys I could ever imagine, but they seemed to impress my parents enough they would trust them to have their five-year-old son sit smack dab between them for this little 20-minute ride out into the country. So my parents got in a car with a few extra things that they decided were too precious to trust to these truck drivers. Yeah, but then they trusted me. <laughs> that didn't make any sense, but there I am. And you can tell this big old truck driver, the guy who was actually doing the driving, he probably hadn't been around kids much. Because his first thing was to look down at me as I'm sitting beside him, my legs straddling the gear shift, and he says, well, little boy, you need to tell us how to get to your new house. I'm thinking, if you don't know, we're troubled. I have no idea. My parents had already pulled out in the car. They were long down the road, and here I am by myself between these two guys, and he's asking for directions. I did the only thing that a five-year-old knows to do. I started crying. I don't know. I'll, I'll never see my mommy and daddy again. Oh, they realized the mistake they had made, and so they stopped at our local Tasty Freeze and got me the largest chocolate and vanilla swirl cone that I've ever seen. It was so tall that half of it was in my lap. It had melted by the time we got about five miles down the road. I remember that as if it were yesterday. But I can't remember the day I got saved. But that's just the way it is for children. Things that are traumatic are burned into our memory the rest of our lives. But the things that are normal and natural and why wouldn't anybody want to go to heaven is just something that I did in simple childlike faith. The thing I think we tend to forget is that the day you accepted Christ as Savior, your heart didn't turn hardened. You're still sensitive to everything in the Word of God. If you as a Christian, if you as a believer, can hear a message on the cross and not be moved, there's something wrong with you. If you as a believer cannot picture Christ dying for your sins, and not be affected. There's something wrong with you. And yet sometimes we interpret a sensitivity to the messages of God's Word and the tender heart that comes with salvation. We interpret that as, well, I must need to get saved. No. You're a tender-hearted believer. You accepted Christ as Savior. He's tenderized your heart. You don't have that old stony heart anymore that could care less about spiritual things, your heart is tender. It's receptive. It's open. If you can hear a preacher preach on hell and not be concerned about your neighbor, there's something wrong. Don't interpret, don't interpret that as a need to get saved all over again. Interpret that as a tender heart of a child of God who needs to see the lost come to Christ as Savior. Another reason why so many times doubts come. And I've seen this more on college campuses than anywhere else. You take a group of college students or you go to a Christian camp. You're around each other for perhaps a whole week, 24-7, or for an entire semester, 24-7. And things can happen in that particular setting that you would never see anywhere else. One of my first years in Pensacola... They brought in an evangelist. It was around Thanksgiving time. And he preached a message that was 
Well, it's kind of interesting, actually. I mean, I love baseball, and he used a baseball illustration. Before he preached, his wife got up and sang, I'm justified. I'm happy in Jesus today. But before she sang, she gave her testimony, how she had thought that she was saved all the way through elementary school and all the way through high school, and then went off to Tennessee Temple University, and she realized she had never accepted Christ as Savior. So she went forward into church service in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and asked Christ to be her Savior. So she gave that testimony. Again, picture the scene now. She's giving a testimony of thinking she was saved, but not saved when she gets to college. And she's giving this testimony in front of hundreds of college students. When she gets done with her testimony and was singing the song, her husband then gets up and preaches the message that stirred the hearts but testified the souls of many who knew Christ as Savior. His message was entitled, God's Baseball Game. And he likened a baseball game as first base, that's salvation. Second base, that's baptism. Third base, that's uh, church membership. And home plate, that is dedicating your life to the Lord. Interesting message. I'd never heard something quite like that before. But then his final illustration is what really brought his message home. Both for good and, unfortunately, for bad. He gave a message and an illustration that referred back to a World Series game, and he mentioned the name of a man by the name of Fred Merkel. Now, he had to change the story slightly, but because I've studied it and read it to find out what actually happened, but the way he told it was this. Fred Merkel had hit what we would today call a walk-off home run. The game was over. All he needed to do was run the bases, hit home plate, and the game was over. But in his eagerness to run the bases with the crowd yelling at the top of their lungs, he misses first base. He hits second, third, and home plate. But when he arrives at home plate, the umpire calls him out. He never touched first base. Well, I'll have to admit to you that the college students on the edge of their seats are about to experience something most of them had never experienced before, and that was a panic on campus. I believe, as I remember talking to some of those that got saved that night, who thought they were saved, but now they're not sure if they're saved. And I realized that a lot of times there was nothing having to do with Holy Spirit conviction. It was kind of this. There were two of the teachers at Pensacola Christian that had come forward that night and got saved. Now think about that, if you will, with me. Let's suppose that tomorrow morning you get a call from your pastor they're in uh, France, and they give you the news. Are there seven of them on the trip? Seven? All seven were under tremendous conviction by being in London today. And all seven, including your pastor and his wife and all the rest of the crew, they all came to know Christ as Savior. Now, what would be your response to that? Would it be, hallelujah? Or would it be, oh, my soul, if these individuals... Now, now, if it's me, you're probably thinking, I can see that. But if I present to you someone that you consider to be godly and spiritual and righteous, and then I tell you that all these people had to get saved, do you think that might just work on some doubts in your life? And that's exactly what happened on the college campus. All of a sudden, Teacher after teacher, an outstanding leader on campus after outstanding leader on campus started giving testimony about how they had thought they were saved, but were not saved, and they got saved. As a result of the message, two weeks later, students came to me and they said, Dr. Bear, could you preach, please, a message 
on assurance of salvation. And for a large degree, what I'm giving you tonight was the basic thrust of the message that I preached. Because there were students and teachers in a panic. Because of that person, who I consider to be so godly, so holy, so righteous, if they had to be saved, my soul, what is my need? You see, as we compare ourselves to others, we always look worse because we know us. I know you know you. You'll never measure up to what you perceive in the lives of other Christians. And it was absolutely devastating to the campus. I saw it happen one other time. And again, I had students coming to me. The pastor of the campus church usually was so tired after Sunday that I always had Monday chapels. And so for two consecutive years in a row on a Monday chapel, I preached a message on assurance of salvation because the same thing happened about a year or two later all over again. Again, not because of Holy Spirit conviction, not because the Lord was working in hearts and lives, but students and faculty were simply in a panic as they compared their wretched lives to the lives that those they held up to as being spiritual leaders, godly individuals. If they have to get saved, if that's their need, then what's mine? Folks, our salvation is not determined by other people. Our salvation is determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Beware, be careful that you do not spend your lives comparing, well, my faith or my experience or my response or my words or the fact that, well, they needed to get saved, so I must need to get saved. Make sure that your solid foundation is in the Word of God. And if you come to a time in your life, as all of us do, where we have doubts about our salvation, make sure you have 1 John ready to go and read through it over and over and over again. This book, this epistle, written by the Apostle John, has one primary purpose, and that is to give us assurance of salvation. These things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. In closing, I want to give you, very simply, ten cures of doubts. If you want a copy of this, I can give it to you afterwards. You don't need to write these down. But I'm going to quickly go through an overview of 1 John and give you some of the reasons that you can then have assurance and rest in the belief that you indeed are saved if there was a time in your life where you came to the Savior. First of all, do you obey God's commandments? Now, I'm not saying you're perfect, but do you obey God's commandments? 1 John 2, 3-5, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. It's not for our salvation, but it's because of a desire within our heart to do what's right. A desire put there by Christ Himself. Secondly, do you love the brethren? I know some are hard to love. But as a general rule, do you love the brethren? 1 John 2.10 He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Number three, are you faithful in church? Are you faithful in church? Again, we're not saying here absolutely every week, never miss, that'd be great. But are you, as a general rule, are you faithful in church? 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Number four. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? 1 John 2.22 who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Number five, do you desire to do what is right? Do you desire 
to do what is right. Again, not perfect, but your heart's desire is you want to do right. 1 John 2.29 If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Do you want to do right? Number six. Are you harboring any habitual sin? Now, if on the other hand, you find yourself in love with one of your sins and you would not give it up for all the world, then I think you may have a problem. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God does not habitually or, commit, or continually commit sin. Seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, that is, continually, because he's born of God. If you have a habitual sin that you choose to let go of, then I think you need ask the Lord to help you with that. You may not be a believer. That's number six. Number seven. Are you experiencing Holy Spirit conviction when you sin? Are you experiencing Holy Spirit conviction when you sin? Who's the most unhappy person in the world? Well, some would say it's the unsaved. I would submit to you it's a Christian who's living like the unsaved. He can't be happy doing anything. He can't enjoy his sin. The Holy Spirit resides within him. He can't enjoy sin. And because he's carnal, he doesn't enjoy righteousness. He is of all men and women most miserable. Again, we see that in 1 John 3, 24. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Number eight. Do you understand the basics of the Bible? Again, as we tried to encourage you this morning, we are never going to understand it all. We're going to study the Word of God for all eternity. We'll have the Master Teacher, Jesus Christ Himself. But do you have a basic understanding of the Bible? Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Again, if you have an understanding of the basics of the Word of God, it's a good indication that you are a believer. Because if you were a natural man, you would understand nothing of the Word of God. Number nine, and here's one that helped me. Do you struggle with doubts? If you struggle with doubts, that actually is a good, I believe, and I'll show you here in a second, a great confirmation that you are a believer. So how could that be? For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I found out something growing up as a boy that liked to torture a sister. I had two sisters, so I had double blessings. Get to torture two. I noticed something. I never got in a fight with my sister if I was in the room by myself. Now that is deep. I mean, you better write that one down. I never got in a fight with my sister when I was in the room by myself. What's your point, preacher? The believer and only the believer has two natures. The new man and the old man. The unsaved has one nature, the old man. Have you ever found yourself getting in a fight when you only have one person involved in the room? When you accept Christ as Savior, you get that new nature. And it's what causes, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, this constant battle. What causes doubts when the old nature and the new nature are fighting it out for your eternal soul? I have never come across any unsaved person who knew for sure that he was unsaved who ever talked to me about having doubts about his salvation. He can't. He has one nature and only one. He has the old nature. But the day you accept Christ as Savior, you've got that new nature. And now you've got a battle on your hands. 
The old versus the new. The spiritual versus the carnal. The spirit versus the flesh. And it will take, it'll go with you the rest of your life until you're glorified and God takes us home. So I realize that when I have doubts, that's actually a good thing. And the Bible addresses that. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? Well, one day the Lord will. But right now we've got to live with it. And we're going to have some doubts. Number 10. Is your present belief in Jesus Christ today? Is your present belief? We didn't do much looking at 1 John 5.13, but if your Bible's still open, let me point out the one little word that changed my whole attitude towards this assurance of salvation. These things have I written unto you that our KJV has believed, it's a present tense, that are believing on the name of the Son of God. The question for you is the question I asked myself years ago. Okay, I don't remember what I did when I was five. But what am I trusting in today? If I today can confidently stand and say, I am trusting today, no doubt about it, I am trusting in Christ and Christ alone, then I am today believing. Something that happened when I was five has an effect. The result is I am continuing and will continue until the day the Lord takes me home to continue to believe. These things have I written unto you that are believing in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Do we have to remember the day we were saved? Well, I've heard preachers say that. If you don't remember, brother, the day or the time that you accepted Christ as Savior, you're probably not saved. That petrified my soul as a teenager. That's why when I wrestled with these things, I had to search the Scriptures. And I brought myself to 1 John because some other preacher had told me that's the book to go to when you have doubts about your salvation. And I realized something. I don't need to remember the day and the time. I don't remember when I was born the first time. But ta-da, I'm here. What if when you left the service tonight, you got in a serious accident? And then when they get you up in the ambulance and take you to the hospital and start looking into your eyes and all of a sudden it doesn't look like much is home, and then they start asking you some questions and they realize that that accident has caused so much cranial uh, trauma that you have amnesia. Are you saved? You don't remember the day or the time. Are you saved? If there was a day, time in your life when you turn to Christ for salvation, you are saved. If you were to live the rest of your life in a perpetual state of amnesia, you'd go to glory. Because you did something years ago that you cannot remember. We all have times where we doubt. And I think, you know, it's not that bad a thing. I don't know about you, but when I look around and see this wicked world there, I mean, I want to go to heaven and the sooner the better. No, I'm not going to take my life and no, I'm going to hasten that. I'm going to simply say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I have a confidence, not that comes from anything within me, but a confidence that comes from the Lord who's given us a little book the epistle of 1 John. Now the Lord is getting ready to close down the New Testament after some 1,500 years and some 40 different authors. But just before he does, he wants to make sure 
that just like he gave the churches at Thessalonica and Corinth and Galatia a sense of peace and hope and comfort, he wants to make sure before he closes down this blessed New Testament canon that each and every one of us here tonight can rest in the assurance that I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Aren't you glad the Lord gave us this wonderful little book? We've just kind of scratched the surface. But ten different passages, ten different phrases that remind us what we need to do when we have doubts about our salvation. Let's bow forward to prayer. We're not going to have a public invitation tonight, but just as I close in prayer, I'd just like to ask you, by the uplifted hand, to simply say this. Like I mentioned in my introduction, I, for a long time, felt it was almost unnecessary to give a message on assurance to adults, because I figure you've got your act together, you know what's going on, and those are things we tend to think of with children. Teenagers, they have doubts. Christian camps make sure that when young people come to those camps, they spend some time if they have a teenager or child with doubts about salvation. But then I realized when I counseled so many adults, some even say 5, 10, 15, 20 years, there were still times where they had doubts. As far as I can tell, folks, 1 John was not written to children, just children. Nor was the epistle of 1 John written only to teenagers. And so as I close tonight, I'm simply going to ask this question. If something that I said tonight from the Word of God, if that has helped you in some way, would you just raise your hand as an encouragement to me to continue to preach this kind of a message to adults? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Almost every hand went up. And that is an encouragement to me, and I am going to continue preaching this message, and I do not think it's exclusively a message for young people. I think all of us need the truths of 1 John. Let's close in a word of prayer. Honey, Father, we're so thankful for the tender hearts of your people. Lord, I do pray that something would be encouragement to each and every one of us to have that assurance of salvation, to know whom we believe, that these things have been written, that we might know that we have eternal life, that life is in your Son. Guide and direct as we go from this place, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.